Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. It is good to see everyone here today. So today, uh, we are going to close out our Why Revival Terry's Sermon Series. Uh, and don't forget that we are closing that out actually tonight. Uh, so we are uh, having a service tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, we're going to be joining with Pastor Jared and Lauren, uh, and we are going to uh, have our own little revival night. Um, but we are going to, we always want to put into practice what we preach, right? And so we want to have that opportunity to practice all of the things that we have been talking about throughout this sermon series. And so tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to come out here, we're going to expect an experience with God, expect that if we show up, guess what? He's going to show up too. And then, when he does show up, we are going to respond, right? Because that really, when we look at the American church, that's what I believe keeps us from revival, is that we aren't responding to our encounter with God. And so it's not just coming out tonight. Yes, come out tonight. We need that. But it's also responding to what that encounter does inside of us, what that does. So we've got to come and expect, and then we also have to respond. So before we do that, though, we've got to talk about our last response of revival. So we have covered three things so far. We've talked about desperation. We've talked about contrition, or being sorry, repenting, and turning from our sins. And then last week, we talked about, does anybody remember? Mark's looking it up. See, I forgot. I'm asking the question, like, you know, but I forgot what we talked about last week. Dependence. We talked about dependence. Thank you, Mark. Mark whispered it, and I heard it. So we talked about dependence. We talked, and, and really, you know, that when we look at the landscape of church culture today, I think that's one of the biggest things that we're missing in this formula, is that in the American church especially, we have this, this self-made, self-reliant gospel that gets preached a lot, and it's very rare anymore that people preach that we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the early church, the church of Acts, the, the disciples, when you look at them, they were dependent on the Holy Spirit, not just for the things that they lacked, but for every part of life. And if we're going to get back to being a biblical church, if we're going to get back to be, having biblical revival in our churches, we need to get back to that dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because when we do... And when we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, it naturally leads us to this next one, and that is obedience. So our last revival response is obedience, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because if God shows up and speaks to us, it's kind of silly not to do what he says, right? Yet, so many times, we don't experience revival because we don't do what God says. 
I read this quote to you all, uh, for those of you who are with us, way back when we were still meeting at the barn. I felt like I preached on it like every single weekend. It, was, it just kept coming up and up and up. And I still love the quote, we just haven't really talked about it a lot, but it comes from A.W. Tozer, and Tozer says this. It says, prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Mm. It's like a gut punch, right? Because so many times we do that as Christians, right? Not you all, just me. I'm the one who does it because I'm terrible. But so many times we do this where, you know, God says, hey, I want you to go talk to this person. Okay, I'll pray about that, God. I didn't ask you to pray about it. I asked you to go talk to that person, right? And we use prayer. Well, guys, let's do it. We're going to do a prayer night. Well, did God call you to do a prayer night or did he call you to go out and serve the poor? And so we use prayer as this mask. And guys, it's the worst kind of mask, right? It's, a, it's like we use God against God because we use prayer. And you can plug in any spiritual discipline into that. Let's, let's, we're talking about revival, right? Let's talk about revival. Revival will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Because so many times in the church today, we cry out for revival. We cry out for God to show up, but we have absolutely no intention on doing what God says. Because guess what? God's told us what to do, right? Right here? He's told us what to do. We were just talking about in our Bible in a Year plan, we're in Micah. So I was talking with our kids last night as they were going to bed. They do their Bible in a Year plan the night before. And so they were getting ready to listen to it. And I told them, oh man, Micah, Micah 6, 8, one of the best verses in the Bible. All right, I love it. And so, you know, I was telling my kids about it. But look, God says in Micah 6, 8, I have told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You want to strip it down to its barest form. There it is, right? But the question is, do we actually intend to be obedient to that call? When I cry out for revival, God, our church needs revival. In my heart of hearts, do I really intend to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. Because guess what? Two out of three doesn't cut it. Not when you're following Jesus, not when he has given you the power of the Holy Spirit to walk out his commands. It's got to be all or nothing. And so when we cry out for revival, we have to be ready to do what God says. We talked about this with Jesus at the tail end of last week. This obedience tied right into our dependence, right? Because Jesus was perfectly dependent upon the Holy Spirit, right? That was what we talked about last week. Every step along the way, Jesus says, I do not do anything on my own initiative, but I only do what the Father has told me to do, right? Yet we have Christians running around thinking, I know how to do this God thing. Y'all, Jesus was God, right? You guys know your theology 101? Jesus, God, the same, right? And Jesus did nothing of his own initiative. Who the heck is Jeremy Allen Metzger 
running around saying, oh, God, I got this. I know how to do this. I'm going to do this. I got it. Are you kidding me? The Son of God didn't even do that, but laid it all down and was completely dependent. And that dependence led him to perfect obedience. And he will do the same in us if we will let go. So, our obedience looks like this. Today we're going to look at the first step of obedience, and that ties directly into what we talked about last week. We're going to talk about how to saturate that obedience once we've been given what we are to do, and then after that, we have to face the storm. So the first step of obedience, and we're going to go all the way back to week one on this. You guys remember week one of this sermon series? We talked about Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this incredible experience in the temple where God shows up. He fills the whole temple. Angels start singing, holy, holy, holy. All this crazy stuff going on. And this is Isaiah's response. First, Isaiah falls flat on his face, right? And says, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the God of glory. Right? And then right after that, as soon as Isaiah gets picked back up off of his feet, he says this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go f- for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Before Isaiah even gets any orders, right? We talked about this. He decided that he was going to be obedient. And this is the first step of obedience talked about this last week too. It's like, you know, the dictionary definition, when it gives you the word in the definition, right? What does, you look up in the dictionary, what's shemungus mean? And then it says, the property of being shemung. It's like, what? Right? I hate that. But that's what this is, right? What's the first step of obedient? Decide that you're going to be obedient. Right? We, like Isaiah, can make up our mind before God even asks that I am going to be obedient. That no matter what God asks, my answer is yes. We can make that decision. Jana and I, when we counsel people before their wedding, we've done a few of those here, um, but before we do it, one of the first things on our first meeting that we ask them, or that we tell them, is when you get married... You need to draw a line in the sand right now that divorce is never an option. And that sounds kind of silly, right? Because nobody goes into a marriage thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to get divorced. It's going to be great. We'll we'll make it about three years and then I'm going to call it quits. Nobody does that, right? But there's something weird that happens when you draw a line in the sand and you say, no matter what, that's off limits. I am not crossing it. It's just off the table. And so we tell couples that we do their premarital counseling, take it off the table. It's not a joke. It's not a word you use. It's not anything. It just doesn't exist. And guess what? When things get hard, guess what's not an option? Where you've drawn that line in the sand. But if you start to move that line, well, yeah, but I mean, but you know, adultery, obviously. Jesus says that. Okay, yes, you are right. He does say adultery. But once that line in the sand starts to move, well, but yeah, or if he just starts to lie. Well, yeah, plus if I just start getting unhappy. 
You see? And it just keeps moving. And I, look, that's not just divorce, right? Anything. God, I will serve you all of my days. Just don't ask me to. God, I will go, but don't make me give up my, right? Those dangerous three dots that we put at the end of our prayers. Because you want to find idols real quick in your life? What comes after those three dots? That tends to be an idol. God, I'll go, just don't call me away from my family. It's because something is more important to us than God, right? Look, we're good at making excuses, right? We excuse it away. I'm really good at excuses. If you ever need some, come find me. But as much as we try to explain it away, when it comes down to it, the reason we don't serve God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength is because we just don't want to. That sounds brutal, doesn't it? But it's true. We just don't want to. There is something or someone more important to us than God. And that, my friends, is called my will. Right? I just, I just don't have time to make it to the revival night tonight. Right? The Chiefs are playing the Broncos. I don't know who are the Chiefs playing. Is that the 4 o'clock game? So somebody's playing somebody, and I, I got, you know, my fantasy team, and I got three guys going in that game, and I really got to see what's going on. I can't make it to the revival night tonight, right? Right? I mean, it's not a big deal. They're just going to sing some worship songs, and yeah, we won't miss anything. I can experience God in my house just fine. Right? I can't wake up early. I can't, I can't give God, I mean, are you kidding me? I haven't seen 5 a.m. since... That night in college that I stayed up all the way through trying to study for that exam. I don't, I don't do early mornings. I can't give God early mornings. I disagree. Because here's the thing, and you all know this. You know it. For me, I'm just going to give you a Jeremy example. Kevin Stefanski, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, calls Jeremy and says, Hey, Jeremy, Browns are in need of a new chaplain. We're going to have a prayer breakfast tomorrow at 5 a.m. Is there any chance you can get to Cleveland by then and lead us in prayer before our breakfast? <laughs> you kidding me? I'll be there tonight, Kevin, and I'm staying at your house. Right? Come on, y'all, we know this. The President of the United States calls you up and says, hey, I need you in D.C. Okay, maybe you don't like this president, but the last President of the United States calls you up and says, hey, I need you in D.C. at 4 a.m., you're not missing that, right? You are setting 17 alarm clocks. You've got an air horn right by your ear, rigged up with one of those little machines, you know, that you drop the marble and it kicks the boot and the boot kicks the man and like mousetrap, you guys know. And that thing's going to blow right in your ear to make sure you are up so that you can be in D.C. at 4 a.m. Because he's the president. I'm not going to miss that. This is the God of the universe that we're talking about. And so many times, he is the absolute bottom of our priority list. Isn't he? That's cheap grace, y'all. In this cheap grace culture we have, you know, because what? Well, Donald Trump's not going to forgive me, but God will. And that's the problem. Well, Jesus forgives me. He doesn't need me up at 5 a.m. 
And that's the problem. I'm super passionate about this, if you couldn't tell. I made a decision. Some of you know this. This is my origin story. You know how superheroes have their origin story? This is my origin story. Maybe it's a supervillain, but this is my origin story. Uh, on Dis- or January 10th of 2012, I have the date marked in my calendar. It comes up every year in my reminders to remind me. That is the day that I went all in for God. I decided I'm done messing around. And what it was for me back then, I never got up early. I just couldn't do it. I actually used to work. My, my professional job as a college student was donut hustler. I was a donut hustler. I sold donuts to people. And so I was up early for that. I can't tell you how many times I slept through my alarm. Probably should have been fired, but I wasn't, praise God, because um, they needed people to sling donuts. But... I wasn't an early morning person. Anybody who was a customer at that donut shop, I'd sincerely apologize because I was grumpy just about every day I had to be in there at 5 o'clock. But I wasn't an early morning person. But on January 9th, God convicted me on this, that if I have a meeting with, with a potential job, like a job interview or whatever, I'm never showing up late for that, right? We know better than that. So why am I doing that to God? Why am I giving God my scraps? And look, guys, I I had all the boxes checked. I'd read through my Bible in a year. I'd done it. I prayed when I had time. You know, I did it, but it was never a priority, and it definitely was never my first priority. So I set my alarm clock the night before, and I didn't set it for 5 o'clock a.m. I set it for 4.53 a.m., because I treated that meeting as if I was meeting the most important person in the universe, because I was. And so I got up early, I went out to the kitchen, I made my coffee, and for three years, y'all, for three years, that was what I did. Every single day, no weekends, no breaks, whether I was sick, whether I was healthy. For three years, I set my alarm clock. Now, some of y'all get up at 5 every day, and you're like, that's nothing. If it makes you feel any better, I do it at 4 a.m. now, but still, and I do let myself sleep in occasionally. But here's the thing. On January 9th, I decided I was done. I'm not messing around anymore, God. I am yours. And starting tomorrow... I am going to prove it by getting up every morning and spending time with you before I do anything else. Did I want to get up at 5 a.m.? No. I still love sleeping. Ask my children. Hey, Dad, what do you want to do? Sleep. You want to go outside? No, I want to sleep. I want to take a nap. I'm exhausted. Right? But I did it because God is worth it. But it all started because I made a decision to be obedient. I made a decision that I was going to get rid of everything that could possibly say no to God inside of here, and that my answer would always be yes. Jesus does the same thing. We talked about this last week. This is the first Bible verse that I taught my children to memorize. My father-in-law taught me this years ago. This is what he calls the most powerful prayer in the Bible. And so it's what I call the most powerful prayer in the Bible now. Because this is the prayer that led Jesus to the cross. 
But what is so powerful about this prayer from Jesus? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus Christ facing the biggest step of obedience that anyone has ever faced in the history of mankind. Right? Anybody want to challenge that one? Hey, Noah, go build an ark. Hey, Moses, go part the seas. Those are hard calls, right? Hey, Jesus, go bear the wrath of God for all of humanity. Right? I've said this before, but this is so powerful. The wrath of God that, that would have poured out on me for all of eternity, Jesus took in a matter of hours. And not just for me, y'all, for everyone, right? That's how strong your Savior is. He took all of it on himself. See, here's the thing. Obedience is really easy when God is asking us to do something we want to do, right? If God is telling you, I mean, that, look, look at the church today, right? What's the most popular thing? The prosperity gospel, right? Follow Jesus and you get a million bucks. Everybody obeys that one, right? We run after it because it's easy to follow God when he's telling you to do stuff you want to do, right? Jeremy, go be chaplain for the Cleveland Browns. Yes. Super difficult decision of obedience right there. Right? Because we want to do it. But Jesus was obedient when he didn't want to do it. If you are obedient, if you go when you don't want to go, if you say yes when you don't want to say yes, then God has your heart across the board. If you are obedient in those moments, you'll, you'll be obedient in everything else. So a lot of what we're looking at here is, is that kind of obedience, obedience when you don't want to. But this is what Jesus did. He was obedient when he didn't want to. And here's the good news for us. Jesus took on a task infinitely harder than anything we'll ever have to do, right? Good news for you and I. God is never going to call you to bear all of God's wrath. That's a good thing, right? If you are in Christ Jesus, Jesus poured out that cup. It's gone. He drank it all. So there is nothing left of it for you to drink unless you are outside of Christ Jesus. And that in that case, you're not under that covering. I apologize if that offends you, but that's what the Bible says. But like we talked about last week, Jesus, in order to go to the cross, had to surrender his will. Even Jesus chose to be emptied completely of himself. Right? Jesus' first prayer before stepping to the cross was, God, not my will. Why in the world? We're going to keep hitting on this. I'm going to hit it until it gets in there, right? Why in the world do we think we can take any other step. Yeah, eventually, if I do my thing, eventually it's going to come along with God's and they're going to emerge in this beautiful... Are you kidding me? I mean, ask anybody who's tried long enough, right? Yeah, I've done it my way, and it didn't work. Then I did it God's way. Wow, it works. If Jesus Christ had to surrender his will to get to the cross... 
we have got to surrender ours to get anywhere. This is the first step of obedience. Surrender, not my will. And, and don't stop praying it. We have this really weird thing as Christians where we think if we pray for something once, then we can just get off it, right? Not my will doesn't work that way. Because you aren't that strong. I hate to break it to you. What's Jesus say? What? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Your, your man, nature, self-nature, the bad side, is strong. Which means we have to surrender it constantly. Look at Jesus in the garden from our scripture reading today. He prays this prayer three times, right? It tells us three different times he went away and prayed this exact thing. Y'all, if it took the Son of God three times to get rid of his will, it's going to take me a lifetime of praying it. Right? And sometimes that's all my day is, is just praying constantly, God, not my will, not my will, not my will, not my will. And then I forget and get mad at somebody who's driving slow in the left lane on the interstate, and i got to go into the right lane to pass them, and it's just not my will, not my will, not my will, not my will. You all know. But this is how Jesus prays, and it's how we should pray, which leads us to point two. Jesus saturates his marching orders in prayer, right? Jesus saturated his entire life in prayer. Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Like we said, Jesus does this three times. In Luke's account of the story, Jesus is praying and is under so much stress and anguish as he's praying, he sweats drops of blood. Has anyone ever done that? Right? That's some stress. I think I've got a lot of stress in my life crazy, right? That's how intense and fervent Jesus's prayers were. But look at what Jesus doesn't do, y'all. I'm going to crush this one once and for all. Jesus does not fake it till he makes it. Jesus doesn't even faith it till he makes it. That's a cute little turn that some people do, right? Just have faith, Jesus. God will pull you through. He doesn't do that, does he? He marches right up to the throne room of his father and he says, God, I don't want to do this. God, please, if there is any other way, please, please let me go that way. I don't want this. Please. So much so that he is sweating drops of blood. He is absolutely broken before he even gets to the cross, right? He's honest with God. How many of us are that honest with God? We like to approach the throne room of God and pretend we have it all together, right? Here I am, Jesus. Shirt and tie, slacks. I have tennis shoes on today, but they're black, so they look like dress shoes. Here I am. I've got it all together. And Jesus just laughs. Oh, buddy. 
because he sees it all, right? There's no point in being dishonest with God because he sees it all. And I think there would be some major breakthroughs some of us would have in our prayer life if we would come to God as honestly as Jesus does. But he still comes to him. And when God gives you marching orders, you can come to him and tell him, God, I don't want to do this. Our son's going to fifth grade camp tomorrow. He doesn't want to go. He loves his family, which is a huge blessing for me. I love that. His family doesn't really want him to go. We don't want to miss him for an entire week, right? But that's what we've been talking about all week. God calls us to do hard things. And sometimes God will say, okay. But if God told his own son, I'm sorry, Jesus, this is the only way. And Jesus went anyway then guess what I can do? Not because I'm strong enough, but because I'm surrendered enough, right? And it all keeps coming back to this, right? Jesus' entire life was nothing but a constant state of communication with the Father. Everything Jesus did, everywhere Jesus went, was prayer to the Father, right? And not just Jesus babbling on and on about, oh, God, look, the flowers, aren't those pretty? Oh, Jesus, look, the sky, I worship you because it's so beautiful. Not just that. I'm sure that Jesus did that. We don't have accounts of it, but I'm sure he did that. But also Jesus listening. And that's the art I think we've lost as Christians today because we love filling the silence with our own voice. But Jesus listened to the Father. And so when it came time to act... Jesus knew exactly what to do because he was constantly communicating with him, constantly surrendered to him. Jesus constantly, through prayer, crucified his will. And look, y'all, you see it right here in the garden, right? Jesus' will was crucified long before the Romans crucified his body. He crucified his will first. And what the Romans did after that, that would take care of itself. And I think the same will happen for us. If we can learn to pray, not my will. If we can learn to continually surrender that. I, we don't even really have to pray, and your will be done, right? Because if I sacrifice my will and get it out of the way, and I'm following after God, there's only one road left after my will's out of the way. Right? And it's God's. But the hardest part is getting rid of Jeremy. The hardest part is getting me out of the way. And it's, it's not, again, it's not something we just do once and move on from. We've got to pray it again and again and again. Too many times we think, you know, Lord, bless my plans. I mean, your plans. And then we stop praying it. And then we get halfway through the task and it starts to get hard and it's like, oh shoot, yeah, I got to pray. God, keep blessing my plans, your plans. Keep blessing them. We're still going here. But it should be a constant state of prayer. Jesus didn't pray once. Right? And Jesus was God. He could have prayed once and that would have been enough, but he didn't. He constantly prayed, kept praying, kept saturating. And so it's no surprise that he kept doing what God told him to do. He was perfectly obedient because he continued to pray.
again, this is how Jesus does it. We call ourselves Christians, but do we really do it the way Jesus did it? This is how he did it. This is how he lived everyday life. So why are we trying to do it on our own? Why do I convince myself that I know how to do it better than the Son of God? Why do I convince myself that some mega church pastor or some, or some small church pastor knows how to do it better than God? I read a Christian self-help book. He knows how to do it better than God. It's all right here. Be like Jesus. It's pretty simple at the end of the day, right? It's the most difficult, simple thing you'll ever do because we've got to get out of the way. Never stop praying. Be honest with God. Be dependent on God. Be patient with God. And then when it's time, face the storm. Now first, now obviously we're talking about hard obedience, right? Like we said, everything, we can do everything, whoops, sorry. We can do everything when it's easy. When it's not hard. Oh dear, did we lose it? We lost it. Well, I'll go without the PowerPoints. How's that sound? We don't need PowerPoints, right? So, we're talking about hard steps of obedience. Easy obedience is easy. Everybody can do easy obedience. We're talking about the hard steps of obedience. So we have to so fix. Look at that. Way to go, kiddos. <laughs> Heroes of the day. The, the really great thing for you all is all of my notes were on that. And so if I didn't have my notes, I was just making it all up. So it is, there is a facing of the storm that has to happen in obedience, though. We've got to face the storm. Because if you're not facing the storm, what are you doing? You're running from it, right? You're hiding from it. But in obedience, we've got to face the storm. And the first part of facing the storm is we've got to pick the right storm to face. Right? Because a lot of times, we pick the wrong storm. We actually see this. This is one of my favorite things in the book of Mark. Exactly 10 chapters apart. I, sometimes I wonder, I mean, of course the Holy Spirit planned it. But it's just so synchronized perfectly. I mean, almost down to the verse, these are exactly 10 chapters apart. Mark 4 to Mark 14. We see this in Mark 4. It says, On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, Let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling, him, filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushions. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this? that even the wind and sea obey him. We see this a lot with the disciples. They always seem to focus on the wrong stuff, right? Especially poor Peter, right? I mean, how would you like that if somebody's following you around with a stylus and papyrus? 
and recording your every failure, right? Peter's like permanently got sandal marks on the inside of his cheek because he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth, right? And Jesus is always like, Peter, you moron, would you just stop? He doesn't say that. He's nicer than me. But, but right? Poor Peter. But we always see this with the disciples. They're always focused on the wrong storms, on the wrong things. And we could argue, Christian, that not much has changed with disciples today. It is so easy to focus on the wrong storms. Because the disciples here are fearing for their lives. They see this storm come up on the sea and the waves start getting rough and there's some thunder and lightning and they get scared. And Jesus is over here sleeping, right? Have you ever felt like that? Jesus, I am in the middle of it. And you're sleeping. Jesus, I am going through the ringer here and you don't even care. Right? Those words of the disciples hit a little too close to home sometimes. Do you even care that we're perishing? And Jesus says, absolutely I care. And he says it in Mark 14. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus Christ is facing the biggest storm in the history of the universe. All of God's wrath. And he can see it coming. And his disciples are sleeping. You can hear Jesus, right? Answering the disciples, do you even care that I'm perishing? Because I'm about to give my life for you. And you can't even stay awake. Even Jesus' most devoted disciples, us today, we get so focused on the right here and right now. The temporal storms we face. This moment, this instant, this struggle. But in doing so, we end up facing the wrong storm. We end up fighting the wrong battles. We forget the first two steps of all of this. To stay surrendered. To stay emptied of ourselves. To stay in prayer. And so we face our storms. We fight our battles. We end up getting caught up in these cultural battles. These church wars. These political agendas. And the whole time, Jesus is asking us, why we're sleeping through his battle. Why we're sleeping through this storm that he has called us to face, that he took on himself on the cross. We've got to face the right storm. And that only happens as we stay continually plugged into him, walking in the Spirit, constantly in prayer. And once we're pointing in the right direction, once we're facing the right storm, then we do what Jesus did. And I love this. Jesus says, Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Look at Jesus here. I don't, I don't. I get this like Hollywood, like you know, the superhero on the eve of battle, like Batman standing above Gotham City, right? Jesus sees this storm coming. Here's what's crazy about this, y'all. We talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about you know, there's a spiritual element to the world that we don't get to see. We're not privy to yet. But you know, as far as angels and demons and all that stuff going on, I'm not I'm not a, a person who's like super, super into that where like everything spiritual warfare, light bulb burns out and you know it's the devil. I don't really do that. But there is a realization there that we've gotta understand. That there are spiritual things going on around us that, that we won't know about until we get to the other side of heaven. Some people get glimpses into that stuff, but but most of us don't know what's going on. Jesus here. Facing this storm, y'all, Judas shows up with some guys with clubs and spears, right? I don't even want to imagine the darkness of the army that was behind them. This is Satan himself with every single power of hell that he had available to him coming at the Son of God. And what's Jesus do? Shrinks back, right? That's what the world thinks, right? Because the world looks at the cross, the world looks at this prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they think, your Savior's weak. Look at him crying before he goes into war. You kidding me, man? Because I see Jesus sitting here, and he is rock solid. His disciples who are all asleep around him, he says, get up. It's time. And you know what happens? Every single one of those disciples turns and runs. Jesus is left utterly alone and he doesn't budge that's your savior with all of the power of hell coming at him he doesn't move he faces that storm and he is rock solid and he's not turning away from him he stares the enemy down and he takes him on right Jesus is resolved. Yes, he went to his father and he begged for any other way. But when his father said there is no other way, he said, all right, then it's on. And he stood his ground, anchored. He was relentless. He was going to pursue this to the bitter end. And guess what he did? He did pursue it to the bitter end, right? He stood his ground. And guess who showed up? Because while the enemy put him in the ground and the world said he was dead and weak and mocked and said, this is your Savior, this is who you serve. Three days later, the power of God reached into that grave, reached into hell, and ripped Jesus up and stood him victorious above every power of the enemy. Forever, forever, Jesus took it on, was 100% obedient, and God showed up. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how you can face these storms? Do you know how you can stand undaunted, unmoved by whatever God tells you to do, no matter how hard? Because God will show up just like he did for Jesus. He has promised us that. 
And this is exactly how God has called us to face our obedience. Not in fear, not in trembling, but in power. Not in my power. I'm not strong enough to do it on my own, but in His power. I can face anything He throws at me. Now, we've got to draw the line here. This does not mean that you will always be successful. Right? This does not mean, because that's the problem we have a lot of times, is that Christians say, okay, I'll try this obedience thing, and then they don't get that job promotion. Well, that didn't work. God didn't come through for me. False. He didn't come through that way for you. Because look at Jesus. You think anybody saw Jesus hanging up on that cross and was like, oh, yep, praise God. God's will done right there. This is the perfect ending we all envisioned. Nobody said that, right? Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 1, right? The cross is foolishness. The cross is weakness to a world obsessed with wisdom and power. But not to God. God showed the world that the cross of all things was the strength and wisdom that he would use to deliver us from our sins. The cross, Jesus Christ crucified, was God's perfect plan to bring God and man back together. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ emphatically puts an exclamation point on the fact that God's ways are higher than my ways. On the fact that God's ways are so far beyond what I could ever understand. And y'all, if God used the cross of Jesus Christ, the worst event of injustice in human history, if he turned that around for the good of all of mankind, then I have to believe that no matter how bleak my circumstances look, he can use it for good. I can trust him. Why? Because Jesus trusted him to the cross and proved through his resurrection once and for all that God knows what he's doing. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God's plan. And God rose him from the dead. We will do the same. As we surrender our will, as we saturate his plans that he gives us in prayer, and as we face the storm and step out in obedience, we will show the world the greatness of our God. And revival will roll down like a river. But we cannot do it our way. We've got to do it his. So with that, let's come back tonight And let's expect God to show up. Let's come back tonight surrendered, ready to let him have our way, and then let's step out in obedience. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect 
Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough. Thank you.